Welcome to episode 11 of Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Sidden. What a day. What a day. What a day. With some serious technology problems. No, everything went great. I know. So good. And Mr. Peter Crable. Hey, Crabes. Hey, man. How are you? Ah, chipper. Chipper. (laughs) All right, well, we are glad to be back. Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. We have a big show for you tonight, right? Yes, we do. Epic. Epic. Uh, we Always have, epic. We have the one and only Charlotte Danielson. Yes, we do. On the program. And so we're going to talk to Charlotte about all things Danielson framework. What should people know about it? Just what's the five-second synopsis of Charlotte Danielson? Ooh, Charlotte Danielson. Known for what? Known for her teacher observation systems. Yeah. Yeah. And her um, really bringing a common language to effective teaching behaviors. There you go. So Used uh, widely. Used widely, yes. Maybe the most widely. So we are honored and excited to have Charlotte on the show. We hope you enjoyed our last episode with John Safir, another giant in education over the last 40 years. So it's been big having those two. Yeah. We learned a lot. We hope you as listeners did too. So Looking at a lot of ways that people look at teaching. That's really the theme of that one. Absolutely. Uh, and the way those two have really had an influence on professionalizing teaching is, I think, part of their legacy. Yeah. And, and we are going to get into one of our favorite writers that we'd like to talk about, the Washington Post, Jay Matthews, and his latest piece on the disconnect between charters and public school unions. And Let's that, get it. Yeah, and that intersection... And this article really happens in L.A. and what's been going on with teacher strikes. So thanks for joining us. You can find me at R.W. Dodd, Mr. Crabes. At Peter Crable. And Mr. Sids. At C.H. Siddons. And you have, we have a website. Yep. You need to log in and subscribe <laughs> and get all the good stuff from there. Yep. Leave log a, into that internet. <laughs> leave, leave, us, leave us a rating. Yeah, please leave us a rating if you can. Yeah, and some, um, and some and show the, feedback. And if you give qualitative show feedback, we'll read it. It's about time Crable turns down the volume <laughs> on the show. Dear Lord, Peter. That's why I, we I need can a, hear all the breathing. We need to hire a producer. <laughs> Did anybody watch the Oscars? No, no, no not at all. You millennials no, didn't watch no. TV You know why I didn't watch it? Because there was no host. I know. It was kind of disappointing. Tina Fey and... Uh, Lisa, 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 Lisa Polar, uh, Amy Polar, oh Lisa Polar, jeez, and I can't remember the other very funny woman. She was from Bridesmaids. Uh, Melissa McCarthy. They're all on SNL. No, They're all on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, Amy Polar. Come on, um, give it to me. So what did they do? They all just kind of they did, just came they, out and presented. They did. They okay. were very. They were very funny. They were okay. the closest thing to cool hosts host for, nice. for a segment. They were. Hmm. They were good. Um, and don't forget about at Ed's not dead PC. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's a thing. All right. That's and the thing. and as always, folks, we are brought to you by Pulp Education, a full service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform, and all cool things. Ed. That's great. We all right. do all that. Uh, show feedback. We have no feedback to share right now. That's a little <laughs> bit of a shame. It was a quick turn. It was a quick turnaround. It was okay. a quick turnaround from four days ago. All right. Don't don't go behind the scenes about when we're recording this. <laughs> all right. So did you read this article by Jay Matthews titled From the Picket Line to the Charter School, The Path Union Members Should Walk? Mr. Craves, did you read it? Yeah, for the most part. Okay. Mr. Sids? I did. Okay. I annotated it. So Basically, what 
Mr. Matthews is contending here is that uh, the energy that's spent by public school unions, in this case, California, with the recent strike in L.A. Unified, um, the energy that they put into demonizing the expansion of charter schools in Los Angeles and beyond as money gru- money grubbing for profit organizations is um, is not fair and more importantly not accurate. Uh, he contends that many charters are in it for the right reasons. Right. And most charters are not for profit organizations. Yep. And that they're really interested in improving education and educational outcomes for kids. Uh, and he's 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 um, imploring unions to try to put their differences aside, at least in yeah. my way of thinking, and and open their mind to what charters might have to offer. Yeah, he's all for ineffective charters uh, or charters that do not serve kids well um, to them being closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he kind of says what I've said all along, which is that there's he, enough food at the table, enough food at the at the proverbial education table. So right. this is so this is my question to you guys: Is Jay Matthews living in reality? Is there is there enough food at the table for for unions and an ever growing charter footprint to coexist? I would say yes, especially in Los Angeles. Um, the data that I, I searched up uh, charter school data, it's a little biased because it's from the charter school organization or association in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, 282 charter schools. There's 150,000 students enrolled in charter schools alone. Um, and then the demographics of, of the, student, the student body of LA charter schools very closely mimic what you find in um, the public schools. However, there are some caveats, and I will give them to you right now. And I, I searched up a little further from data from 2010, 2011. The charter school population in Los Angeles differs from the public schools. The schools themselves are about half as large. Okay. So that's one thing, just the, a, a school, scale of size. S- school size, right. Right, school size. Um, s- charter schools have slightly smaller proportions of Asian students and students in poverty than the other public schools, the proportion of Hispanics enrolled in charter schools is substantially smaller. Mm -hmm. Conversely, charter schools have larger proportions of black and white students than are found in the district and the public school and feeder populations. So the data coming from charter schools... they're disproportionately African-American and Caucasian? I wouldn't say they're disproportionately. There's more students uh, who are African American, okay. um, but the Hispanic population is the is the largest population in LA Unified. Right, right. right? And, okay. and one of the things that Jay Matthews says in his article that he touts as research or the data from this uh, Stanford research project was that in 2014, 48 percent of Los Angeles charters performed significantly better in reading Ooh. than traditional public I know, schools. I know that one got you going. Yeah, and then 44 percent significantly better. In math, so reading and math, they perform better. Uh, but then we look at the data as to how many kids are enrolled in charter schools versus public schools, and we have we have less kids who are enrolled. Um, the schools are smaller, so you have a, a, a maybe a more manageable size of classes or just a manageable size of population. Um, and then finally, so other factors that would be, could could be improving test scores right. other than just the charter itself. And, and then two other pieces. One is. 
the data for charter schools, there's 7% of charter students in charter schools are special education students as opposed to 11% mm-hmm. in public schools. So not a significant difference, uh-huh. but e- still how different. E- how about ESL? Uh, in public be- schools, 30%. In charters, 21%. Okay. Students uh, in poverty, mm-hmm. um, in the public schools, it's 75%. In charters, it's 70%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly not, I wouldn't say disproportionately, but they are, they do have a, a smaller population of the students that may require more services or. It's what they call educational load. They have a lower educational load. I, I, I would, I would agree. In the business. Not, that's what they again, call. Not, I don't know how significant that is in well, terms of numbers, raw numbers of students, but it's there. And, you know, and that's the, th- is depending on the state, I think that can vary widely because that's certainly some place we've heard about um criticism maybe in indiana i've read about somewhere this was like a year ago where they are they were able to essentially discriminate and be like oh we would you know student with xyz special needs but we don't have the facilities you know to accommodate right so in some ways they are able to and you know as you're talking one of the things that always and i i don't know maybe i just haven't seen it but that i i do question and you know i think i've typically come down on the side of, you know, regulation for charters within reason and in a highly regulated environment seems okay. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder about any underlying, whether they're implicit or explicit, um, equity issues about how it affects the kids that are left behind that don't go Mm -hmm. to charter schools. And if it, in fact, makes their... um, educational experience worse and again i don't know if there's any data on that or not but that is always a big question that i have yeah and i mean matthew says how can you how can you dare to deny parents the right to have their kids have access to something that's working and that's kind of what he says here i mean and that's what he says the 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 unions are trying to do well i you know i think the language of that i have a little bit of a problem with school choice is not some inalienable constitutional right which i when he says something like that that makes that's what makes how dare you deny parents the choice and we've had neighborhood schools for you know hundreds of years well really yeah let's just say a hundred years hundred years yeah um but you know it's it's a vastly new thing right to have the quote that stuck out to me was then as now parents were taking their children elsewhere because many urban schools were not giving them the time, encouragement, and stimulation they needed. I think that's a very disparaging quote as to what the urban schools were or were not. I'm saying urban schools. Those particular schools are are providing or not providing. And And, and it troubles me that we scapegoat certain schools that for years and years and years were not given resources that they deserved. And because of redlining or housing patterns or you know, poor public policy on the behalf, behalf of state and federal governments that they are now being nicked and getting students' um, populations taken away from their particular schools. Yeah, and going back to when we spoke with Kathy Hoffman Amen. weeks or a month ago, um, and we asked her about their their voucher system, she said, well, you know, we need to get real and fully fund our public schools bef- before we start looking at solutions. So in that sense, it's like, you know, I don't know, maybe I don't think we really have necessarily fully funded our public schools to say, when you put the right resources and the appropriate amount of resources, whether it's money, whether it's people, whether it's counselors, whether it's nurses, whether it's whatever, all those things taken in combination, then let's see 
what schools can yeah. do. Yeah. Well, well, and what he doesn't mention in here, he doesn't mention what we've talked about on prior shows, which is Proposition 13. He doesn't mention that systematically California undermined its own ability to, yeah. to provide yeah. quality yes. public schools yes. by, by, by capping what, the amount of taxes correct, they could collect. By their own legislation. But then allowing more wealthy districts to correct. charge more. Right. Abs- absolutely. You know, yeah. in local taxes. Yeah, and then you could argue that if over the years, if you – if if um, if – the cost of if they if the California had kept up with the nation in funding public ed, you know we might we might not be having this conversation right. about the inroads charters have have made. Although they have made significant inroads across the country in most major urban settings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, you know, what? I, they really have in pretty much yeah every every city. Every, yeah, yeah. And one one a side point, I guess. So. Alex Caputo Pearl, who is the yes. union's president, um, quotes and says, the unsustainable, destructive practice of unregulated charter school growth. So I, I says to myself, is that true? Is it an unregulated, just sort of free-for-all in California? So one of the things that I looked at was um, how many God, schools... You guys did a lot of research. You're such a nerd. I literally did that while Casey was talking. That's why you, you pointed first. to him when yeah, I you, asked yeah, the you first, first question. Okay, go ahead. Um, Sucker. So I, in, just in LA itself, it looks like there was one charter school re- revocation. Is that the right word? Yeah, revocation. One, yes, their charter was revoked yep. um, last year. And several others, it, it looks like... Uh, they never opened or uh, no longer operating as a charter. So I don't know if that means then they're, you know, a pay school or whatever. But so that is that is something food for thought. Um, I don't know what the appropriate number of schools closing is, though. Um, but one seems like not a lot. And then on the flip side, um, in terms of how many charter schools were opened last year, um, the number is... 1,300 new and expanded charter schools. However, of that 1,300, they count um, if a school were to go from a K to 5 and add a 6 to Mm 8, that counts in there. If they were to double their enrollment and their capacity, that essentially counts as a new school. So of those, the uh, the equivalent of 70 new schools across the state, but then another 1,200 plus expanding their programs. So that... That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Is I, that is, and I guess the it's a lot, but is that a problem if there's seven somewhere between seventy and thirteen hundred, depending on how you look at it, schools opening and, and only one, at least in LA, closing. Hmm. And Mr. Caputo Pearl, I mean, I think what Jay's also saying are 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 words and phrases like the unsustainable destructive practice of unregulated charter growth. I mean, those are those are strong words. Yeah. Yes. And those are fighting words. Yeah. But I mean that's as the president of the teachers union, you kind of have to yeah, you use do. those. You got to you got to come strong. Um, what is the impact on? What do you perceive as the impact on teachers in terms of they're not allowed to join unions? Yeah, right. For the most part, in charter schools, yeah, um, they work like dogs. Where does they, where does they sign on to that? Where does that come from, though? They that do. they can't join unions is that part of the charter? I don't know that. It's a good question. Yeah, I'll look it up. Yeah, I mean, if they just decided to. See, I guess the question... Organized, could they join a union? I guess the question that I have, and it kind of gets back to our Rahm Emanuel discussion in episode 10. If you've missed it, episode 10 of Ed's Not Dead, <laughs> the Rama Culpa. Rama, do you like that? Yeah, that I like good. that. That was like good. That. Um, 
where he where we wrestled with that idea of of autonomy at the school level, especially as it relates to leadership of schools, the principalship. Um, I mean, I'm just always curious, educationally, programmatically, organizationally. Yeah. So public schools are big. And when I say big, I mean they are, uh, contrary to our friend Secretary DeVos, they are a system, and there are lots of them. Like, let's take Yellow Unified, lots of schools. They're very stable. But unfortunately, they, they, they don't change much. That's, that's, that's the negative byproduct of having a large, stable system. Is that Any you, large, it, stable correct, system. Correct. Is you don't think change doesn't come fast or, right. or furious. And here you have charters, which... If you can survive in a vicious environment, right? Because it's not a, it's not an easy marketplace. You can go out of business. You can it can it can go south for a lot of reasons. But if you can survive, you may have a level of nimbleness that you wouldn't have yeah. in, in public schools. And maybe you can do some innovative things. So I'm always balancing those things. Right. Is 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 one better than the other? Um, public schools provide something that that I would argue has been the you know part of the bedrock of the country yes um but at the same time there's a reason why charters have developed right it didn't happen by accident they were a response to something in the environment yeah um and and they're here and so an update to the janus decision janus yeah janus yeah uh so i was i did a quick search about uh, on Ed Week. There was an article that we can talk about in the future in a future show. About a quarter of all charter Chicago charter schools have been unionized, compared to eleven percent nationally. And it's worth noting that charter organization may not be a strategy other state and local unions choose to pursue. There are about three point one million public school teachers. There are only about two hundred nineteen thousand charter school teachers, and only about four percent of teachers in Chicago who are part of the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, members work at a charter school. The majority of, uh, in terms of unionizing charter schools, which you'll you'll have single sites or a small amount of schools, requires a lot of work and doesn't necessarily bring back the big returns. Can I ask you a tricky question? Oh, tricky question. And then, we're, and then we're up against our, our break. But let's, let's, let's maybe end with this. I have a quiz for you, by, by the way. Is... Red Light Challenge. Is a... Um, is a Catholic school teacher a teacher? Or are they a... Oh, what? never mind. Are they a teacher? Yeah. Is a is a charter school teacher a teacher? Yes. Is a public school teacher a teacher? Yes. Are the first two any less of what you would consider a teacher than a public school teacher? No. Okay. But, but I, I'm going to disagree that, on the You, you took my question. strategy. Where I, I, I make you answer what I want. That's yeah, okay. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to disagree on the premise of the it's question. That's a Sean Hannity strategy. I'm going to disagree on the premise of the question because the whole point of, of teacher unions is to support those within the public school system I'm not, I'm and not, public school funding. I'm, right? this, is not a, this is not a union question. It had it, when I thought of it, uh, unlike Crable, who's evil, I didn't have that. I didn't have that intention. My, I do think, though, for those of us that are born and raised public school teachers, yeah, you, we can't deny that we look at teachers in other kinds of schools and and potentially wonder: Are they really? A, are they really a teacher like I'm a teacher? I, I would argue. that. Would you agree with that, Mister Crabs? Yeah, at all? No, I, I I think I would look at private schools and religious schools differently in terms of where they get their money from, 
the type of student that they're working with, perhaps. Are they teachers? I'm not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about charter. I, I would look at charter school teachers as those who would benefit greatly from being unionized and having and ensuring that their rights are going to be and their contractual rights are upheld by the powers that be. All right. Let me ask one before we go. One question, because it's really hard for me to think of a head of school as as a principal. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I know that's a terrible bias that I have, yeah. but I think does it does a head of a private school really do what I do as a as a principal? I don't know. I don't know. Either. They don't have to let every kid in. Yeah, but that doesn't does that make them somehow less of a leader or less of a teacher? No, it's different. All right, okay. so let me let me ask kids my are, qu- let me ask kids. my question. Yeah. All right, one of the things in this article... I don't, you don't get a question. We're going to break. No, I get a question. No, okay. gets a question. Make it fast. All right, it has Jeez. to do with Jeez, I love. the characterization of those that open charter schools <laughs> yeah. as greedy billionaires and that billionaires have their own narrow education agenda to divert money out of our public schools and into their corporate charter schools. Do you all agree with that or disagree with that? Uh, that, that most I would have to see who, is, which, what, what the companies are. I mean, the nonprofits, the not-for-profits, I have less of a problem with than the ones that are. That's ridiculous. Completely profiting off of. Okay, yeah, uh, it's fun to see what you're taking. I mean, I, was. that that is a small percentage of those that get into this. I think. I'd, I, I'd, I'd I would have to see the list. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so too. I, I think that's the fringe. That right. would be there are my, some that I are, yeah, are. There are some. I think no there are. Fo- I, I mean, think a, a majority of charter schools, I would imagine, are trying to just improve the education that students are getting in public schools, and that they didn't get when maybe they were public school teachers or or principals, and they weren't allowed to innovate, and they weren't allowed because of bureaucracy or whatever, yeah. not allowed to well, do it, X, Y, or, or Z. I mean, why did Bill Gates get into education? Yeah, because anybody can be a teacher. Well, any, anybody well, can figure he has, out. He has a bootload of money, <laughs> right, and he, he thought he could make a difference. Yeah, but anybody can make a difference. Anybody can be a teacher is the idea that anybody can do education. That's why Bill Gates got into it. I can fix it. Now it's, he's going back to just curing diseases and. I went to countries. I went to school. I understand it. I have money. Yeah, he dropped out of school though. All right, folks. The article is from the picket line to the charter school: the path union members should walk. It's by Jay Matthews. It is in the Washington Post, February seventeenth. All right, boys, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with our big interview. Thanks. All right, fellas, we are thrilled to have the great Charlotte Danielson on Ed's Not Dead. Ms. Danielson is an educational consultant based in Princeton, New Jersey. She's taught at all levels from kindergarten through college and has worked as an administrator, a curriculum director, and a staff development staff developer. In her consulting work, Ms. Danielson has specialized in aspects of teacher quality and evaluation, curriculum planning, performance assessment, and professional development. In addition, she has served as a consultant to hundreds of districts, universities, intermediate agencies, and state departments of education in virtually every state and in many other countries. This work has ranged from the training of practitioners in aspects of instruction and assessment, the design of instruments and procedures for teacher evaluation, to keynote presentations at major conferences. She has a rich and varied educational background. She holds a BA in history from Cornell and advanced degrees in philosophy, economics, and educational administration. Do the, the do the two of you feel inadequate yet already? A little bit. A long a way little. to go. A long yes. way to go. All right. From from Oxford and Rutgers University, 
Uh, Charlotte, it is amazing to have you on the show. Thanks for agreeing to join Ed's Not Dead. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. And let me just correct one thing okay, shoot. about in the bio. Yep. I'm no longer in Princeton. I've moved to San Francisco. Oh. And I'm in and I have to say I'm enjoying a nice warm weather here compared to what you all have got, <laughs> yeah, I think. That is that is correct. We are jealous. That's that's great. Okay. Yeah, thank, thank you. Well it's, it's only gr- taken me it's only taken me three years to become a complete weather whip. <laughs> yeah, well, it's that I don't. You can't find many better places to live no, in the United States no. than no, San Francisco. No, it's a great, it's a great place. Yeah, that that's great. All right, are you ready to jump in? Sure. Okay. Anytime. So, uh, your work has had a big impact on us as practitioners. Your your framework for teaching has been adopted by countless districts nationwide. Will you talk a little bit about the process that? led you to developing it and why you think it's been so effective? Sure. Well, let me, let me, the, the way it came to be is a bit of a story and I hope this isn't too long. No, go and shoot. And you can always cut it. Yep. But <laughs> I, I was a, I was working at educational testing service for some time and I was developing for them some products in some programs for teacher professional development in teaching for thinking, actually. And it was very interesting work. But while I was in that work... Can you, can you, can, can, the, can you give us a decade? When was that? Oh, good question. Uh, 80s. 80s, okay. Mid, sort right. of mid-80s, Okay, yes. all right, go ahead. And, and they, at that point, were, had decided to revise their, what was known at the time as the National Teacher Exam and was revised to become what is now known as Praxis. Oh. Um, you know, and so, and they were, there are three levels of the Praxis test for, for teacher cert licensing, actually, uh-huh. for new teacher licensing. And the first level was very rudimentary. It was reading and writing, basic skills. The second level, Praxis two, was, and still is, I think, uh, teacher content knowledge about what it is they're going to teach, like do they know chemistry, and and you know and some general sort of a book knowledge about teaching. But Praxis Three was designed to be a performance assessment of teaching. That is, it, it was designed to answer the question: not only do you know chemistry, but can you teach chemistry? Mm-hmm. And the way they decided to assess that was to send trained assessors into teachers' classrooms in their first semester of teaching and to make a judgment as to the quality of the teaching. And they hired me, God knows why, but to design <laughs> design the training program for the assessors, for the observers. Uh. So I and I thought, well that sounds like fun. And what what I didn't realize was how hard it was. Of course, you never know right. when you get started on something like that how hard it's going to be. So so I jumped into that and I designed a training program for the observers. And it was really important that these people not only observe, but do so accurately. And so if, if the two of us went in to observe, we would agree on what we saw there and that it was up to standard and so on. So in order to do that, you had to be clear about what you were looking for and, and, and what it looked like when it was well done and things like that. So all the things that we now know are part of ordinary teacher evaluation, but it was relatively new at that point. But what happened when I did that was that, you know, we got feedback from the people in the training, and we got this sort of amazing, surprising to me, feedback from participants. And they would say things like, 
And when they would write their little feedback forms, they'd say, this was so valuable. They'd say, I've become a better teacher or a better principal or a better university faculty member because this is the first time I've had an opportunity to discuss good teaching with my colleagues. And and I thought that was kind of sad, frankly. Yeah. Because I thought, well, what do you what do you do on your staff in service days? <laughs> not that. Well, apparently not that. Go out so, to lunch. <laughs> right. Well, whatever. And so that got me thinking that if this was valuable for the assessment of teaching practice for initial license, surely this would be valuable for all teachers, not just first year teachers. Mm-hmm. And so I had the ideas, and I realized that it, it, we didn't have such a thing at the time. Now, I had come up with, when I was first teaching, Madeline Hunter was the rage. Oh, yeah, Madeline and Hunter, the scope and remember sequence. Madeline Hunter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we, one of the things we all learned from her, it was maybe 100 years ago now, yep. <laughs> that there is such a thing as a common language. And right. that's what everybody says now about my framework. It's given us a common language to yep. talk about teaching. Yep. That doesn't seem like a big thing, but, you know, it, it is, actually. It is a big thing. And so... So it occurred to me that if this is valuable for beginning teachers, it surely would be valuable for all teachers. So let's make a framework that is applicable to across the entire, the, the whole trajectory of the profession. Mm-hmm. So that's where the, how the framework came to be. And so it was an outgrowth, in a way, of that work I had been part of at ETS. But, and here's one other interesting part of the story. At, at that time, before that time, nobody had used rubrics to, de- to define levels of performance in right. teaching. Yeah. It didn't exist. No. And, but, but I had been doing work in student assessment, and like everybody else in that field, I recognized that if you're going to evaluate, let's say, a student's writing sample, you have to have a rubric. It's not that they either do something or don't do it. They do it better or worse. They do it to some degree. And the question is, to what degree does somebody do this well? And then I thought, well, okay, teaching, that would be complex performance. And, and so if we need a rubric for student complex performance, surely we more so need it for teaching. And so that's what caused me to write the rubrics, yeah. was recognition that in order to understand this complex work, we better write rubrics and, and you know, evaluate them. Yep. So that's where it came from, was recognizing that, that practitioners could really benefit from a clear definition of teaching and, and with rubrics to, des- to de- describe different levels of performance, that, um, that this would be a contribution particularly to practitioners. Yeah. So that's where it came from. Yeah. So you're clearly a pedagogical expert. Um, savant. Savant. So one of the more controversial initiatives in education in you know, the last several years, decade or so, has been on teacher value-added measures. So I was just kind of curious if, if you have an opinion on it, one, and two, um, if you think it's good for either teachers or students. Well, let's back up on that question a little bit. I assume you mean teacher value-added measures to evaluate the effectiveness of teaching. Yes. Correct. 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 Okay. Yep. Okay. Let's, let's back up off of that question for a second. That is, I do believe that every, any school or school district has an obligation to ensure good teaching. I mean, the, the, 
a school or a district or a state, for that matter, has to be able to ensure quality teaching. Quality assurance is a critical, a critical element of, of a good school. And they, this principal or the superintendent or the commissioner of education, whoever it is, needs to be able to say to his or her public at any moment, everybody who teaches here is good. And here's how we know. We have a system. Now, there are two fundamental ways to, to establish that. One is based on teacher practices. Here's what they do. And the, the things that teachers do are the things that are associated with high level of student learning. The other approach is on outcomes, like the direct measure of student outcomes based on teacher practice. I'm sorry, you can probably hear it. Uh, are you in trouble again? In the background here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is San Francisco after all. <laughs> um, so now the, the value added measures, I mean, if they were perfect, I would, I would be fine with them. But let's be honest and, and acknowledge that they are not perfect. They are far from perfect. They, they build in all kinds of assumptions. They, I mean, first of all, they're built on, on assessments that themselves are limited in what they can assess. They're basically bubble tests. Right. And I think if we were all sitting around a table and, and, and thinking about our own children, let's say, yeah. and what do we want them to get out of school? It would be a lot of stuff that you cannot assess on a bubble test. Right. Period. Full stop. And so, so there's a there's an issue there around just what is it that's assessed, and then and then there are all kinds of, of assumptions about value added measures. That I mean, you can go to the psychometricians who know much more about this than I do, and get all kinds of damning reports right. about why they are unreliable, invalid, um, and so you can maybe make the broadest judgments but there i mean if i were gonna i would never stake any important decision on those tests okay. i just don't think they they hold up yeah so, so uh period so we in a recent show um we had a discussion about an op-ed that Rahm emanuel the the former mayor of chicago recently mm-hmm. wrote in the atlantic and um to summarize it, he's basically re- recently had an epiphany about the school reform efforts he led in Chicago. And, and one of the main um, insights that he's had about what they did in the city really focused on the role that principals uh, play in teacher effectiveness. Uh, he, he went into school reform really focused on teacher accountability and kind of coercive accountability in some ways and came out of it years <laughs> later understanding that that principals play a vital role i I, i'm curious charlotte in 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 your long career how you've seen that that evolve the role of the principal and ensuring that teachers are effective and where do you think we are now with it what does a modern principal need to be able to do to ensure that teachers are effective well, I, I guess I could ask you that same question. I'm talking to a couple of principals. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you are, but you've been and, in a lot more schools and, than us. Well, I've been in a lot of places, and I will say that my own view is that the principalship has become virtually an impossible job. Oh. I mean, I just think it, a lot of stuff has get, gotten loaded onto the principalship that, that it's, it's impossible. I mean, it's not only a managerial job, right. which it's always been that. 
you got to make sure the buses run on time and you get the budgets in and right. so on like that. And the attendance and I mean all the all the operational stuff has to work. Right. But then there's then there's something called instructional leadership. I know that's what I was going to say. So do you and, believe in this idea right. of instructional leadership? I'm just not sure that principals can do it on top of running a building. Interesting. I mean, I've I've read various um, you know efforts by by people to try to split the role of principal into manager and right. instructional leader. Right. And I've not ever really talked to anybody at length who's done it, but I would love to because I think it's got some real merit. Um, so let me just say that I did write a book called Talk About Teaching. Right. Published by Corwin a few years ago. Okay. I've actually been in two editions now, and it's written for principals who are trying to be instructional leaders. And 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 I do I have come to the view that in order to be an instructional leader, you have to you have to first of all understand instruction and see that your job is to enhance the intellectual capacity of the school as a whole. Mm-hmm. That means of the teachers in the school right. and their work with each other and their work with students. I've become a fan of using um, professional learning communities mm-hmm. as a vehicle for teacher learning and for teacher collaborative work right. around what I think we would have to call problems of practice. Right, that Rick, to, that Rick have, to four work that he did all those years ago. Yeah, yeah. If, you have, if you've got some fifth grade teachers working together right. and they meet together on a Thursday afternoon and they say, what's, what's coming up that we're not, not sure we know what to do? Well, let's, let's look at some student work. Mm-hmm. Where, are the, where are the obstacles? Where are the bottlenecks we're running into? And what should we do about it? And what could we do about it? And, and what's, what's the knowledge, the expertise that we need that we don't have yet? Uh-huh. And so I think there's a real role for uh, teacher leaders to be facilitators of that work. Okay. And that's not the job of every principal to go to every PLC meeting and lead that work. I think that's a job for teacher leaders. And it's really important, hard work. And it's, it's different from teaching your fifth grade class, but it's more like that than it is making the bus schedule work. Right. But, but is, and, it, is it fair to say, though, that most of the people over all these years that have, that have implemented your great framework are, mm. prin- are principals, right? Well, I mean, uh, let's back up off of that a second. Okay. I mean, it's been used, I mean, it, as I wrote in the very first chapter of the first edition of the book 20-some years ago, there are, it's, it's a useful document for a lot of purposes. One is simply in teacher preparation. Okay. If this, is, if this represents good teaching, are we teaching these students how to do this stuff? Right. Oh, okay. All right. And then when you're, if you're hiring, uh, and I did, I did do a book for ASCD outlining all these different applications of the framework. If you're recruiting and hiring teachers, well, how could you, if they submit a video, you could look at the video against the components of the framework. Or if you're uh, doing a mentoring program, you could organize the men and you can organize a mentoring program around those elements of teaching. And so on, you just go down the line. All the things that happen in the in the trajectory of a teacher's career, how can any all of any of those activities be enhanced through having a clear and concise definition of what is good teaching? And yes, teacher evaluation is on that list, but it's sort of the end of the list actually. It's it's much more important around PD 
mentoring, coaching, etc. Okay. So, um, and and, so, and I, as you're as you're talking about the the evaluation part, um, mm-hmm. w- which is really a reactive approach to to what some folks would call supporting teachers or, or providing a certain amount of mm-hmm. support. Um, what we were just talking about this just a little bit ago. Um, what do you think post-secondary educations need to do to change in terms of how they prepare um, teacher candidates and how they how they send out the teachers they have ostensibly trained in the post-secondary environment to, to schools? Well, I mean, it, it seems to me it's a pretty straightforward answer. Now, doing it is not so easy. <laughs> but if, if, the, if the 22 components represent good teaching, if I were running a teacher prep program, the first question I would ask my faculty is, are we teaching this stuff? Right. And let's, let's do a curriculum audit of what we're teaching. And I recognize, I mean, I've tried to do that a few places, and I have to say I've not had great success. because What is the roadblock the there? Prep, the teacher prep world is a different world. Right. And, and, and I don't even want to get into that because <laughs> I don't really understand it. I, I, I just disparage I really it, and, it, and I don't understand it. No, you're, I don't you're want to disparage it. But it, well, I, I don't want to disparage it, but I recognize that we, we speak different languages, and they, they're worried about tenure, and they, they, they work to different drummers than I do. Right. But, they, uh, so, but that would, if I were in a rational world, that would be my question. Are we teaching these kids this stuff? Right. And then are the, are the people who, when they do their clinical practice, are they working with teachers who understand that this is what good practice is? And when we, when we have our supervisors who go out and observe them and give them feedback, either in the school or from the university, are, is this what they're looking for? Right. And having good conversations. I mean, it seems to me it's pretty straightforward how to, how to teach people these skills. But you do have to have the infrastructure set up that will support that. One of the most fun things, little workshops I ever did once was in a, a town where that had a college and they put their, their student teachers in the, in the school districts in, the, in that area. And they, they invited all these people on a Saturday, and people came on a Saturday. And it was the student teachers and their cooperating teachers and the university supervisors. And we did a little workshop on the framework for teaching. And, and it was the first time they had ever realized that they were actually speaking the same language mm-hmm. and, that, and that it was, to, in, all their, it was in all their interest to speak the same language and to offer these young teachers, these prospective teachers, meaningful feedback on, on doing this stuff well. Right. So it was, it, I mean, it was, not a, it was not rocket science in terms <laughs> of, a, of a model, but it seemed sort of straightforward, but it was very hard to pull off because you had to get these people to come in on a Saturday, right. et cetera. So, but I thought it was great. I loved it. All right. Well, um, we're now at the point in the show, Charlotte, where we, we like to take a little bit of a risk and we pass the baton to Casey, the, the Casey quiz. And so are you are you willing to be a good Uh-oh. are you willing to be a good sport? And, and if it all goes south, we'll just cut it all out. Um, sure. but I don't let fine. them cut it out. But it, but it might be fun. I can be a risk taker. OK, sure. good, good. You, you've taken plenty of risk in your career. OK, Casey, it's 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 on you. Go. All right, Charlotte. It's, it's been truly a pleasure having you on the show and actually being able to talk to you in person. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. You are certainly the most famous and important Charlotte in the teaching profession, I think. But <laughs> well, that's a low bar. <laughs> that's a small... but, but we want to check your understanding about the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. 
And I have three oh, questions about this growing southern city. If you answer two out of the three correctly, you win a prize. And I don't know what that is yet. Oh, boy. This sounds like, <laughs> wait, wait, don't tell me. That's, I, that's where I stole it from. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Um, all right, you ready? Number sure. one. I mean, as, well, is one of them have to do with voter suppression? Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't go that dark, but uh, we could do an extra okay, bonus on. one for that one. <laughs> Number one. The Charlotte metropolitan area is the largest metropolitan area in the U.S. without what? A, consultants. It's illegal to be hired as a consultant. B, zoos. They just don't seem to like animals. Or C, a Chick-fil-A. I was going to say a baseball team. But, um, oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm sorry. No Just idea. Take a guess. Come on, pick one. Pick uh, one, Charlotte. You're a former okay, test what designer. Are, what are those places again? Consultants, again? zoos, or a Chick Fil A? Hmm. I'm going to say a Chick Fil A just because it's ridiculous. Oh, that was uh, well. Sorry, actually, it was zoos. They don't have a zoo. Yeah, Charlotte doesn't have a zoo. They're 75 miles well, away from a zoo. Sh- that just shows how enlightened they are. That's true. <laughs> That's exactly That's right. right. I agree with that. Anyway. All right. Well, you have two more chances, and I have a bonus one just in case. Okay. Number two. Okay. The city of Charlotte has a nickname, and it is what? A. The Queen City. B. The Hornet's Nest. Or C. Zootopia. <laughs> I'm going to say the hornet's nest. That is correct. The hornet's oh, nest. Oh, nice. That's right. That's right. Um, number three, Charlotte is known as the capital of the world for what? A, and they're all cheeses. A, cream cheese. B, Limburger cheese. Or C, pimento cheese. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that one. They seem all very unlikely, so I'm going to say pimento. That is correct. Hey. Oh, she oh, passed. Very good. Out. Very two good. Out, two out of three. All right. Do, do. I have a bonus one. If I didn't know this because I'm okay. not a sports person, but maybe you do. You ready? Number four. The NFL's Carolina Panthers have played their home games in Charlotte since 1996. At present, they're the only team in the league that's owned by... What? And this is an open-ended question. Oh. Yeah. Or well, owned by I'm whom? Drawing a blank. I, I was going to, when I said baseball team, I had forgotten about the Panthers being a football team. Okay, I have no idea. A I don't, former player. Yes, that's oh. right. That ex-Baltimore oh, Colts. Jerry, Jerry Richardson. Jerry Richardson. Who, who just passed away. Did he? Yes. Oh. Wow. Yep, yep. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's almost as good as the Green Bay Packers being owned by the town. That's yeah, right. <laughs> that's exactly right. You're right. You're right. Well, I really like that. Charlotte, <laughs> thanks for thanks for playing along. Uh, and oh, it, you're welcome. It has been a, an honor for Ed's Not Dead to have you on the show. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you. We know you you say you're retired, but we know you're not really retired because I'm sure you're up to all kinds of things. But but as far as electronically out there on the internet or your, your books, sure. what, where, where do you want well, to point people? Well, you can write, you can contact me through the Danielson group. Okay. Org, and they will forward an email. And, um, and let me just mention one other thing as, and because we didn't get into this, but I'm sorry we didn't. And that has to do with the framework for teaching being grounded in some assumptions about both students and okay. teachers. Right. And I do think it's important for people to, for you to have this somewhere in this podcast. Okay. That, that um, anybody who spent time with a three-year-old knows that young children are just learning machines. Right. And, and that I have always viewed the job of teachers to be one of channeling that incredible energy for learning into 
you know, useful ends and to, into ways that will be useful to these kids as they get older. And that because students come to school and to education and to life with such incredible energy for learning, and, and it's very challenging to channel that energy, that, that the, the assumption about, about students is that they are natural and enthusiastic learners. And the assumption about teaching is that it's extraordinarily complex work and that teachers make literally hundreds of decisions a day, often on incomplete information <laughs> and like in a hurry. Right. Yeah, right yeah. And so, and so, and Lee Shulman put that nicely a long time ago in, a, in an essay he wrote that teaching is, he said after 30 years of doing this work, he's concluded that teaching is probably the most challenging, difficult, subtle, nuanced, and frightening activity he had ever encountered. <laughs> yeah. And he said, and he said it's, it's more demanding than a, than a doctor would encounter in an emergency room in a hospital. Yeah. And, and I, I believe that because yes. it is extremely demanding. And, and yet we also have to take that with a grain of salt, because if you think of the work that doctors do, mm. no doubt it's demanding. But, you know, doctors see their patients one at a time. Right. Now, in schools, we would call that tutoring. Yes, that's that's yeah, that's <laughs> I right. Mean, it, it's granted. I mean, doctor med- medical work is demanding work and it's complex, etc. But, you know, it's not. 28 patients all at once. Yep. So I think we, we should not overlook the fact that teaching is com- it's complex intellectually and it's complex in a practical way. And that, and that that's part of what supporting teaching entails is to make that work. So I have enormous respect and sympathy and admiration for people, for, for individuals who can do this work year after year after year. Right with such commitment to it, and I admire that tremendously. So I'll just leave with that and say thank you to all you teachers to do this great work. Well, that's a great way to, that's a great way to end Charlotte. Absolutely. It's an, it's an honor. It's an honor to have you on Ed's not dead on behalf of Casey and Peter. Thanks for coming on the show. Enjoy San Francisco and, and hopefully we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you soon. All the best. I hope so. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Uh Bye-bye. Well, that was pretty incredible having Charles Danielson on the show. Yeah, another I mean, heavy hitter. Yeah, I um, I've only read about her for years, and I've never worked in a situation where her framework was used. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly in my in my doctoral program recently, mm-hmm. I mean, if there's ever an example of a framework in in the evaluation of teaching, it's always Danielson. That's what it comes back yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, and I loved her Madeline Hunter reference, and it made me feel like a total. Come on, let me hear it, geezer. Geezer. <laughs> yes, I had. Hey, the Madeline Hunter lesson plan format. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was called the developmental sequence of a lesson. Oh, yeah. Say that in your old man voice. <laughs> the developmental sequence of a lesson. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I I I particularly keyed in on something she said about supporting and evaluating teachers and she called it quality assurance. Oh yeah. And I, I think it's spot on, but I also think it 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 wouldn't resonate with the teaching public at large because it sounds like cold terminology, industrial business like terminology, quality mm. assurance. But uh, quality insur- assurance assurance quality assurance is a very nineteen eighties, nineties phrase. Hmm. But it's 
It is. I mean, it's, it's accurate yeah, as to it's what totally you're trying accurate. to do. We're trying right. to assure quality teaching, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But how do you make it, how do you frame it in a way and public relations it to make it mm, more palatable? Um, or yeah. is that the problem? I don't think it, I don't yeah, know if it is uh, the what problem. What are you, a softie? A little bit. I mean, it's a little it, bit. She's basically saying, she, and, but she's saying taxpayers need to be assured that that their investment in public schools is is there's a payoff. Yeah, right. Yeah, you yeah. know, and it comes back to some of the stuff we've talked about in the last month or so about um, the system is broken or not broken. You know, it's not really based on anything. You know, the people that come out and go, public education is broken. No, I don't think it's like, oh, they have so many great data points and have been into so many right, schools. You right. know what I mean? It's all about the message that gets out and right. that you can sort of latch on to. Right. Um, and so it's gets kind of, headlines. Right. And so the, the flip side of that is, oh, public schools are great. Right. You know? Yeah. The teachers are great. Right. The quality is sure. I mean, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> they but, have the QC sticker that yeah, gets stuck in your pants. Yeah. How, you know? how fascinating is it that her... Her framework evolved from really kind of a, a she was working for testing, yeah, and that um, you can see how her the the rubric and the these very discrete things that teachers need to be able to do, mm-hmm. no one be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see how that evolved out of the work she was doing in yeah. the nineteen eighties. A very logical and, sequence. Yeah, it's interesting yep. that the praxis one and two yeah. have become so widespread across right. the country, but. I have never even heard of the Praxis Three. The praxis three. Yeah, I was. Um, that that I I understand why it never went anywhere because yeah. of just the logistics of actually doing it um, from a federal or even a state level. Much like John Safir, she referred to clear definitions of teaching mm-hmm. of what teaching common had. language. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and she gave Madeline Hunter the props for that common language, and I feel old because that was the actually I learned the Madeline Hunter way when I was trained to teach. Oh, yeah? It was pre Danielson. It is, it is interesting that the common language theme has not caught on across the country. Or has it? I don't know. It doesn't no, seem I like think, it has. Really? I don't feel like it has. Re- regarding pedagogy? Yeah, like to the but level did, of skillful teacher or Danielson, like where they have yeah, but, very succinct terminology for things that are happening in the classroom. Yeah, but so many systems use Danielson. I mean, it's... it's they a, do. I just don't... I don't know. Maybe, but maybe that it's just tr- my feeling. Well, the systems use it, but does that trickle down to teachers using the language? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's, right. I, that's I don't know That's a fair either. question. Yeah. 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 Um, well, can I can I just say the real bomb that you dropped in that interview? I know what you're going to say. <laughs> the principalship is an impossible job. <laughs> oh, no, I was, I was <laughs> not yeah. expecting that. Yeah. yeah. I caught me, caught me a little. Like, my, mouth, my mouth was gape. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. whether to say yes, that's true. I, yeah. You know, but just the, the mix of the management of the school and the instructional leadership. And you obviously, you know, asked her quite a bit about that. It's, you know, and I don't, I think I need to think about it, honestly, a little bit. I don't I know do that too. I can come out and say yeah she's totally right or like no like it's totally doable it's just it's a hot take that's for sure and there's there's certainly been a lot of people that have said that teaching is an impossible job Mm -hmm. but i don't know that i've heard a lot of folks bring it up that the 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 principalship and leadership of a school is an impossible job you know again talking about Rahm Emanuel and not focusing on principles and leadership but i i think she made some very good points about the, the balancing and uh, of the principalship. She did. I, I, I mean, a lot of what she said about how challenging the principalship is, is it I, rings true to me. I just didn't hear about the role the principal plays in instructional leadership. I mean, I, I, 
she talked about PLCs and the t- and the role teachers play with each other, which is incredibly important, mm-hmm. as Rick DeFore showed for in all his work. But um, I didn't really get the feel for how she thought principals still play a a key, a key role. I mean, in maybe that. I'm assuming. But I think it was I what, would, did the teachers take that role? It's important the teachers are leading right. the, the mutual uh, learning amongst colleagues, right? So the so is that then to well, maybe assume the, the, the principals principal, have a limited role in it? Uh, yeah, or creates the conditions that okay. allow teachers to learn that and cultural take change. piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah without yeah without like being the actual leader of right. the learning, creates the space. Yeah, but I guess what I then my follow up was well, but in systems where her framework has been used to create evaluation systems, who most often implements those? Principles, right? Probably. I mean, principals are largely responsible yeah. for evaluating Maybe. teachers. Yeah. yeah, you are, and I, I, I'm not not to dig on not to dig on you. I'm certainly not, but I'm I'm saying like yes, you are. I'm I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> no, it's it's not. I'm about to insult you. No, so no, no, just no. Hold it's on. Not, it's, it's not an insult. It's, it's, it's not an insult. I'm not, saying if you're out of the classroom for let's say five years. Oh, there we go. It's the out of the classroom. Thing. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm I'm just trying to. I want to hear. I want I'm not three years. You've been out of the classroom. Jerk. Okay, go ahead. Baby, I didn't even get the. Uh, I'm trying to soften the blow because you're so sensitive. Okay. Well, you're sensitive millennial. Okay. Uh, I I think there's something to be said about how much can you be, to what extent are you an instructional leader if you've been out of the classroom for three, five, 10, 15, 20 years um, without having strong instructional leaders who are doing the work every day in the classroom with teachers? I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there as a, something to consider um, when like, I'm, I'm thinking of folks that I work with who three years ago, they were out of the classroom and in the three years that they were out of the classroom, every school had Chromebooks put in like a game changer of, of, of pedagogy. Right. Um, that just that those three years lost. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not saying you can't be I an be- educational expert and you know the stuff that's going on. Right. But I, I'm just saying it, it the further you're removed from the, the classroom and actually teaching. Um, yeah, I think it does I, affect I, a sort of the, your day-to-day implementation right, right. of whatever. Because right. if you haven't done it, you know, it gets a little a little rusty. Right. So. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I mean, I would argue that, I mean, John Safir has not been teaching for a, a, probably a pretty long time. Oh, 30, and, and 30 Dan- plus Yeah, years. Danielson hasn't either, but would you trust them to go into a classroom? Absolutely. Okay. But I also, in, in, in our so discussions, obs- when I... When, observing when you, is a separate set of skills in some ways it than, is. than teaching is. It is. And I, and, I, and I will go back, and I wasn't insulting you. I'm saying that all the discussions that we had yeah. when we worked together was, was always in-depth in terms of teaching and learning. Right. And there were always questions that you would ask right. that would probe my thinking and make me think differently about what I'm seeing in the classroom. So I'm not saying it's not... And, I, Relevant. And, and listen, I buy what you're saying because it's the same for the principalship. It's the same for any position. Right. When you've been out of something, you know, for, right. for folks that supervise principals. Yeah. They're not principals anymore. So do they? Do you lose your fastball? Yeah. Because you, you, you don't do it? Um, yeah, no, I think that's a legit question. Anyway, um, that, was, that was amazing. Yeah. Another, 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 another educational giant on Ed's Not Dead. More to come. All right. Uh, thanks, Mr. Craves, for... Hooking us up with Miss Danielson. Well done. I do feel a little. Is it Doctor Danielson? I think it's Miss Danielson. It's Ms. Yeah, Danielson. yeah. Okay. She's got a I lot of degrees. I'm not sure they were. Yeah, I mean, I looked because I was like, oh, I don't want to call her the wrong thing. Yep. All right, folks. Uh, we'll be right back. Yeah.
Welcome back to episode 11 of Ed's Not Dead. Hey, boys. Hey. Hey. All right. I I'm hope, so excited. We hope you enjoyed that musical interlude. Oh, that was good. Such so a good, good. Who was that band? From the one and only Soul Witness. Soul Witness. All right. Uh, it's been a great show. As always, we are brought to you by Pulp Education, specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform and bad game shows from Mr. Sid. <laughs> bad game shows. Quality right. game shows. Uh, right. Before we go into that, I am can, not I, can I tell you a side story? I'm not feeling Let's it hear right a side story. It's yeah. a side story about Soul Witness. Oh, I like side Soul stories. Right. So we Backstage. Have, yeah, this is behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. So, behind the music. So we have an it's the VH1 an, special. <laughs> we have an organ player, right? Yeah. And uh, last last rehearsal, he was like, hey, like just to let you guys know, I'm going to be gone for like most of the summer. And I was like, hey, okay. whoa. Well, well, where are you going? You're out of the band, man. He's gonna he's gonna hitchhike around the country. What? Really? Uh, yep. Is he gonna send in his uh, his organ playing? No. Via satellite. Uh, I think he's probably not gonna be wearing shoes a lot. Is he weighed down by familial obligations like you and me? Uh, no. He's just like he's just a hippie man. Does he have wow. a Does he have a partner? Yeah, she's gonna stay behind. Really? Uh, he's yeah. hitchhiking. Does he's, he have? Does he have? Are you allowed to hitchhike in the country? Does I don't he think have, you're allowed to. Does, hitchhike. does he have offspring? No, no, he's like twenty six. I was. I went across. Does he have progeny? I went across country when I was twenty five. You had a car. I did. That I yes, I did have a car. I did. I would not have. That's a little like that's a little Brian McCandless. Yeah, 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 yeah. A yeah. Little, little into the wild. And so we were so trying he does, to doesn't eat bad berries oh, in Alaska. So when he left, we were, we were trying to make sense of it, and the guitar player had the best line. He Which said, is. "You know what, man? Hippie's got a hippie." That's right. <laughs> it was like what you got to do. It's really allowed me to accept it. All right. So he's How old is he? I think twenty six, twenty seven. He's he's finding he his way. He's young and <laughs> he's finding his way. He's finding his way yeah. like a good millennial, <laughs> a second wave millennial. He's he is he's at the end of the millennial. He's a second tailwind. I think they. <laughs> I think they got. By the way, we haven't talked to. Speaking of millennials, <laughs> oh, can we? You know, we did get one piece of feedback that I want to share with you guys. When I when I think of millennials, when I think of millennials, I think of one T. Well, that's what I'm saying. Because I, I, I think of young people, and then it makes me think of an old person. So I I I sent Mr. Patterson a tweet, right? Direct message. Right. So it's private message, and it was about the Mueller investigation as usual. Yeah. God, and I said, you, you know, we've been trying to get together, like hit, uh, him and Mary Beth, and right. we usually meet halfway. Sometimes we'll just have lunch or whatever. And uh, he he went. He meant to reply <laughs> to direct message. I, I I saw that. I was but wondering what that he, was. Oh, on but Twitter. He, but he made yeah. it. But he, he made tweeted it a out tweet. To <laughs> and and I'll I'll read it to the it also to our listeners. Really makes that sense. Is. And he said, "Let's get a date." Do you want to come down or meet? Because he lives in Delaware. April or May. If you visit, you can do stuff on your own some of the time, like bikes and beach. And then Andrew Kozlowski, Mr. Koz replied to him. He goes, sounds good, Jim. Just send me the address. And he said, can't wait for Ed's Not Dead to see this. You're going to get roasted big time. We should we should all responded to that all the time. I hope he responds with his address. Said we would be I definitely would put that He's never answered on one show. of our phone calls. So funny. What a... He, he is so good. He's a, he's, a, he's a good guy, that, that one T. All right. What do you got for us, Mr. Sids? All right. So since we uh, just talked about some... Um, going to the picket lines with charter schools and teachers a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Uh so there were nine teacher strikes in 2018. Did you okay. know this? I did. In yeah. nine different states. I, I can name them all. All right. So that is your red light challenge today, gentlemen. 
All right. State, city, what? Oh, I have to put a timer on. Oh, I got so cr- just state. I, why do we keep doing this game? I do better on multiple choice. When I ask you to have to name things, I do awful. They're all very similar because they all ask for similar Can things. Can we work collaboratively? Yes. Yeah, remember, that's... Is that the, is that the, the thing? We're a team, man. Your team. It's millennial right. challenge. Right, ready? ready? One, you, you have one minute. Ready? Go. West Virginia. Ding. Oklahoma. Ding. California. Nope. Oh. Um, oh, yes. This is correct. Los Angeles. Just talked Sorry. about that. Ding. Tennessee. Nope. Kentucky. Arizona. Yep. Kentucky. Yep. How many is that? Uh, that is one, two, like four. three, four, five. Uh, you have four more. Four more, man. Texas? Nope. 30 seconds. New Mexico? No. Washington? No. North the, Dakota? No. South Dakota? No. Alaska? Illinois? No. Missouri? Virginia. Yes. Yes. Virginia? VCU School for the Arts. North, 20 seconds. North Carolina. Ding. South Florida. Car- not South Carolina. They don't have unions. Um, Florida. Well, can nope. you say yes or no? Nope. Ohio. 10 seconds. Georgia. Michigan. Yes, Georgia. Georgia. Yes. Georgia. yes. Wisconsin. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, so you got all of them. Yeah. Nice job, Mr. Graves. All right. Good. All right. So, that's good. Uh, actually, did you say Kentucky? No, you didn't get Kentucky. All right, read the list to us. I said Kentucky. Right. Oh, you did. Oh, well, you did. I right. said Tennessee okay. and then Kentucky. Well, I, you got it. Great job. Yeah. You get a trophy. Yes. So Arizona, yes. Colorado, Georgia, Kentucky. I, did. I didn't say Colorado. Los Angeles, I didn't California. Say we miss Colorado. Yeah. Oh my bad. I need to take better tolls. Yeah. Uh, better better notes. Better North tolls. Carolina. <laughs> better tolls. Are, I don't know. Tolls. tolls. <laughs> North Carolina, Oklahoma, <laughs> Virginia, and West Virginia. <laughs> What are you thinking about? What is that? Come on, we need to explore that. What's a toll? (laughs) Get on the couch, man. Let's talk. Comfortable. (laughs) You gotta take the show. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what that was. It's embarrassing. I gotta recover from that. So, uh, West Virginia was a statewide strike. Virginia was at the VCU School of the Arts, so not statewide. Mm. Oklahoma was statewide. Um, In North Carolina, it was just numerous counties. Uh, Los Angeles was only a district-wide strike. Oklahoma. Kentucky was a teacher walkout in only some counties. Right. Um, Georgia included, actually, it was it had to do with bus drivers. A lot of bus drivers walked off the job. That was a guess. Schools. That was a guess on my part. Yeah, it was good. Colorado teacher strikes in numerous counties. In and Denver Arizona just, had a statewide. Just strike. happened. We should have gotten that one. Well, that was 2019. This is 2018. Ah, gotcha. Yes. gotcha. Oh, so that was recent. Yeah. And would California be considered 18 or 19? Well, Los Angeles was last year, and they just had... So L.A. was... Our, Oakland is... Uh, Oakland is now striking, or was striking oh. recently. Yeah. I can't keep up with them. Yep. As our friend Randy Weingarten said to us, there'll be five more strikes before we talk <laughs> to right. her. Right? She did say that to she us. She did yeah. say that, yeah. Well, that's as it should be, so teachers can get what they deserve. Promote the public good. That's Absol- right. Absolutely. It's more than just about getting what they deserve, but doing what's best for kids. That's right. Promoting the common good yeah, of public education. education. Have it, yeah, being able All to... that, okay. Yeah, come on. It made, it made they want to be selfish. able to yeah. buy a house and feed their kids. I think that's reasonable. Okay. Uh, folks, thanks for tuning in to episode 11. Uh, thanks to Charlotte Danielson for joining us. It was great, wasn't it, fellas? It was great. Glad yeah. she was yep. able to take the time to talk with yeah. us. Yeah, yep. that's another... In spite of the emergency vehicles... <laughs> Going crazy outside of her her, her come abode. In, come yeah. in, take her away. <laughs> if everything's fine. Yeah, she she was excellent. Uh, please check out the story by Jay Matthews on charters versus unions. We'll pop that into the show notes. Yeah, Mister Sins will tweet that out as well. Uh, you can find me at R W Dodd, Mister Crable at 
at Peter Cravel. <laughs> I, I lost it for a sec. <laughs> and at CH Siddons. Look us up on Facebook. Visit our website. We got any new blog blog posts? Up. Got a couple in the in. in, in Casey's in had the a couple in the works. He's he's not yeah. sending them. They're, well, they're just uh, draft versions. I have three that are just in draft. Yeah, send them. I have one. Send in, to me. I have an I'll outline. Send it. Oh, nice. I don't know if it's. Let's ever. Do it. Let's add to it. Right. What's it Put called? It What's it folder? called? What's it about? Before we go, Th- ten seconds. It's it's a it's it is our. It's. It summarizes our our philosophy. Ed's not dead's philosophy Ooh. that the that the the demise of public education has been greatly gr- overstated. Greatly overstated. Thank you. Mm. Yes. Oh, look that, at that. that cool. public public ed is alive and well. All right, I like, like it. Um, public ed is alive and well. Yep. Title. Ed's not dead. Ed is not dead. Ed's not dead. Um, all right. So, what do we got coming up on the show, Mr. Krabs? Oh, uh, nothing to preview. I got an email. What I spent do you mean? A- Randy Weingarten is coming. Randy up. Weingarten. Yep, yep. Just and once we can get over our technical herders. We had some uh, technical herders. <laughs> get over your tolls and hurdles. Technical herders. <laughs> when we uh, get a producer, uh, yeah, we'll have Randy on the show. Man, and I, I like spent all my mojo getting the last couple guests. Yeah. <laughs> Now I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I have to say that watching you two troubleshoot the technical problems tonight, folks, oh, so, that you, you, so didn't, you didn't have to see, I, th- I thought Mr. Siddons was going to have, have a meltdown. <laughs> Freak out. It was really good. <laughs> anyway, uh, spread the word about Ed's Not Dead. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Keep tuning in. Leave us some show feedback. Contact us. Give us ideas for the show. We want input from you. You guys are what makes it a special show by listening to us. Uh We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us. Say say later, guys. Have a great night. Later.